0: talking about it this is Hamilton today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML
1: hey it's Hamilton today I'm Curtis Thompson Scott's son Will Weber is on the board kid is in the cloud in the newsroom Dinah Weeks and Dave Woodard Elon Musk has just bought Walmart and he's playing to get rid of the greeters wearing blue vests. oh never mind it's all fake news from Twitter. Here's Scott Thompson.
2: We know where everyone else is. Where the heck is he? Where is he? In like a the shower? I'm not sure where he is. Uh, good afternoon. It is 900 CHML, I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, it is uh, Hamilton today. Will Weber on the board picking the Uptown Girls. So you have to explain uh, yourself, Will. Uh, and and really, I I you know as we let the uh, the kids pick the hit sometimes uh I was I offered up uh Morris Day and the Time Jungle Love, and this is where we ended oh. up. Will explain yourself, oh, please. yo we, oh,
3: we yo. <laughs> oh we oh we <laughs> I love love me some Prince but uh, you know sometimes you just want to hear some Billy Joel. My mom's a huge Billy Joel
2: not fan. Not Prince, not Prince. <laughs> it was Morris Day. Well, and Morris the Day in the time, but Prince yes. wrote uh, a lot. Yes, maybe, that's true. true. Yes, very true. Very true. All right, sorry. Go ahead. Where did this come from? Uptown Girl. Ah, uh, well, my mom's been a big fan of Billy Joel for a long time, and uh, Roy Green actually put this on his music playlist, and that's how I got into this particular one. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thunk? Look at the Roy go! All right, there you have it. Uh, and thanking you, Will, as always. Anytime, uh, Will Weber on the board, and of course, also uh, as you, as Kurt mentioned in the newsroom, Diane and Dave. We would love to hear from you. We got another jam-packed show coming up, uh, including Tom Will. Nelson's going to be joining us uh, a little later on uh, in the 4 o'clock hour. And uh, many fans of Tom will know uh, that he had the book out. Uh, He wrote the book Beautiful Scars, the autobiography autobiography of his life. And um, now it is made into a movie. Uh, Eileen and I got to watch it last night, and it is unbelievable. It is incredibly moving, and uh, it tells you a lot about the person who uh who we all know and and all love and that big guy on stage with all the hair and the toque and the the big burly voice uh and man there is another side that is uh just an incredible story and not only is it tom's story it's also uh canada's story and a lot of others who uh who have experienced similar situations to to his so we're going to talk to him coming up a little later on uh but beautiful scars coming out and man it is uh it's gripping it's 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 uh, it's gonna move some it's gonna move some minds that's for sure. All right. Also coming up a little later on, about four o'clock, as the show is just getting going, we're gonna be dragged down by a budget. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, and this no doubt, because we're so close to an election, really sets up, uh, what we are going to do or what we're going to see heading into the next election coming up June 2nd, the provincial election. I'm gonna play you a couple of clips here from Colin DeMello, Global News Bureau Chief. Uh, and this is on what is going on and where we are and, and what is coming up in, in the, uh, in the first part of this budget.
4: So building hospitals, roads, bridges, transit, in fact, this budget uh, is going to be spending about $158 billion over the next 10 years, so that's about $15 billion per year in uh, what what could be a lot of critical infrastructure uh, spends uh, in the province. This is a unique situation for all of us, because for the first time, you and I actually get to vote on this budget rather than politicians debating it and passing it so we're the ones who ultimately get to decide whether the ford government should reintroduce the budget in a couple of months or whether some other party should have a a crack at government for low-income earners uh, there's the lift tax credit that means the first thirty thousand dollars of income was not taxed now they're increasing that threshold to $50,000. So they're saying in total about 1.1 million workers in Ontario will benefit from this uh, lift tax credit. That means $50,000 of their income tax-free.
2: All right, that's Colin DeMello, Global News Bureau Chief uh, in uh, at Queen's Park. And coming up a little later on this afternoon, the budget will be read at about 4 o'clock. And, of course, uh, Diane and Dave will keep us all abreast of that in the newsroom of what is uh, going on throughout the course of this. Also coming up, and we've heard a lot about this, uh, Rolling Thunder. Look at this reminds me, I don't know, I just keep keep thinking of that Seinfeld episode. Uh, Rolling Thunder protests coming into Ottawa this Friday. More on that coming up a little later. Uh, clearly, it appears as if Ottawa is prepared for something this time. And hopefully this will come in one side and go right out the other and all will be well. Also, I saw some incredible video today, the toll that is being taken on the people uh, of China as the nation grapples with COVID-19 and apartment buildings and such literally being boarded up, the lobbies being boarded up with people in them. Uh, in order to get people to stay inside and not come out. Uh, we'll talk about that all coming up in the first hour of the Hamilton Today show. And as always, looking for your input, feel free to send us a note at Scott Thompson at 900chml.com. As you may or may not have known, uh, coming up this weekend. And, you know, you wonder if we should be even talking about this, because maybe this is, you know, um, promotes these sorts of things, but it is news, and we've all heard of the Rolling Thunder protest that's making its way to Ottawa this weekend, this time on on bikes, not on motorbikes, not on uh, in trucks and such, and obviously law enforcement says that it is uh, more than well uh, prepared for this event, uh, unlike the first time around. Let's bring in Sean Sparling, retired Deputy Chief Sault Ste. Marie Police, currently the president of investigative solutions network and is with us now sean thanks for the time i hope you're well thank you thank you for having me at this point and and i guess we really don't know or maybe we do but what is ottawa expecting what do we know about what is what is going to arrive there tomorrow
5: well it sounds like quite a contingent of uh, motorcycle enthusiasts the uh, this rolling thunder and uh, it purports to be a uh um, Support group for for veterans, and I'm seeing a lot of uh, kind of intelligence work or even media reports talking about that the group may have a little bit more of a nefarious side to it. But certainly, its uh, its cover story is that it's a support group for
2: uh, uh, for veterans. And it appears that Ottawa is ready this time. There is a plan in place.
5: Yeah, I would think so. Uh, certainly, they've uh, they've learned from uh, last time. Um, in the, in the beginning, uh, Ottawa uh, in the last uh, kind of occupation, they went down the typical textbook, trying to uh, facilitate safe protest. Uh, I guess uh, however you want to put it, but in this scenario, they they've learned a lot from them. this uh, this kind of this uh, uh, one this right wing type uh, protest that's going on. Um, they really don't have any interest in uh, in cooperation uh, with uh, with the police. And they seem to have learned from that, and they're talking about uh, uh, blocking off uh, the downtown. I'm sure it's going to be much more than that. You're going to see probably controlled access points on the on-ramps coming into the downtown of Ottawa, and they uh, seem like they have a pretty robust plan this time to, uh, to keep um, uh, the bikes and whatnot for out of the downtown.
2: And are you expecting just motorbikes? Or are you expecting other vehicles and any idea of numbers at this point?
5: It, it certainly seems like it, it could be uh, a couple thousand or more. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the count is at this point. There will be other vehicles for sure. Uh, there will be support vehicles uh, and whatnot. There will be supporters in different vehicles. Um, I saw the uh, the chief uh, from Ottawa talking about uh, not allowing these vehicles into the downtown core, but it's going to be more than just the motorcycles and just the individual people. Uh, but it uh, sounds like they're still going to let them uh, let them come into the downtown on foot is certainly going to be a lot more controllable than what happened last time
2: um you know obviously hindsight monday monday morning quarterback why not this the first time and obviously ottawa's you know they they're used to protesting and such but do you think a red flag went up when somebody you know would have said you know these this time they're coming in big trucks to me that would have been a huge red flag
5: yeah, I, I agree with you. Like that's, uh, and I agree with you. Certainly, hindsight, as I say, is twenty twenty. When the uh, when it first all happened, I was on one of these uh, similar programs in the very first day or so of the protest, and uh, I really thought that um, that Ottawa had it under control, that it would peter out, and then they would deal with this uh, the last remaining uh, individuals involved in the protest. But that, I was totally wrong about it, and obviously uh, the Ottawa command staff was totally wrong about it as well the uh the dynamic of these protests has changed and has changed dramatically because of these type of right-wing uh, um, factions involved and so now that uh, the police tactics have changed as well um i think there was a lot of mistakes made uh, in ottawa initially i think it was very well handled towards the end um, but uh, they certainly learned from those mistakes now
2: uh the first time out i uh, i was i was listening to one commentator said you know obviously with big trucks are uh, harder to move that's obvious as it compared yeah. to to motorbikes and such but also the ability to sleep in big rigs obviously that's not a yeah. case here
5: no ex- exactly but the uh, also the weather's changed too that was in the dead of winter um but the uh, they would be like they'd be worried about people just camping outside at this point right. um the uh, but the vehicles you're right are are much smaller and they can't hide inside uh, the, the big trucks anymore, so they'll be directly susceptible to arrest and whatnot. So this is a very much a different dynamic, but also the tactics from the police are, are changing dramatically. They're not going to allow them down there.
2: Uh, do you, is this going to go throughout the entire weekend? They come in on Friday night and then leave Sunday? I mean, so obviously there's overnighters, there's destination, anything on hotel rooms or where any any of these protesters may be staying?
5: I'm sure. I'm sure they've all booked into the uh, into the downtown and uh, surrounding hotels. Um, the um, where I saw it was supposed to carry on over the weekend. It'll be uh, time will tell if they they clear out in time for uh, you know the Monday morning uh, traffic and whatnot. But again, I'm sure the police have that uh, that plan for, and I would expect that there's very robust intelligence gathering going on in the background. Probably a lot of uh, different types of surveillance and whatnot. So they probably have a pretty good picture about what's going to happen here.
2: Uh, obviously, as we said, Sean, uh, hindsight 2020 and such. But at this point, it seems just to have been some sort of leadership breakdown, whether that's the police chief and the the tactics used, because obviously uh, they're way more prepared this time than last.
5: Yeah, you know, again, that's the lessons learned. I, I do think there were some command and control issues in the uh, in the first protest. Like the, uh, they were allowed to establish a very strong foothold in the downtown, which really yeah. should have never happened. But that's the lessons learned at this point. Um, I, I do have some faith in the uh, strong faith in the current leadership in the Ottawa Police. I think they'll do quite well. And so, obviously, that they have a unifying command structure. They're already uh, using the RCMP and the OPP where they didn't ha- didn't have that necessarily right at their fingertips before. So they really have created more of a unified approach uh, to this one. So,
2: again, I think the lessons learned are going to be uh, put to good use. I think uh, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I think the, yeah. hopefully come in one end and go out the other and all will be well. And uh, we'll yeah. talk about it next week. Sean Sparling this with his retired deputy chief, Sault Ste. Marie Police, currently president of Investigative Solutions Network. Sean, as always, thanks for the time. Be well.
0: Great. Thanks for calling. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: China's going through a very difficult time with COVID-19. Inferior vaccines, hesitation. And also, uh, a zero-tolerance uh, policy, which basically means they just shut everything down. And Beijing has closed schools, suspending weddings, funerals, 22 million people. It's all in a world in uh, effort to avoid plunging China's capital into uh, a COVID uh, lockdown like they've, uh, they saw in Shanghai. And it's really starting to uh, affect people, the citizenry and hoarding going on with food shortages and such. And there was just some uh, incredible video. I was just watching from an Instagram account where they're literally boarding up the front of apartment buildings, apartment complexes, and sealing them off so the people can't get out and then locking them. And then delivering food uh, to them, I guess, to survive. But you have to think about emergency, fire, or something like that. But uh, just bizarre, uh, draconian measures to to fight which you know a, a disease which the rest of the world is is slowly getting a handle on a virus rather. Let's bring in Gordon Holden, director, China Institute, professor, uh, political science, University of Alberta. Uh, he is with us now. Gordon, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. Thank you, Scott. Boy, it's it's frightening to see these uh, videos, and you know, often we look at the way uh, the Chinese Communist Party does things and we shake our head, but man, it's frightening when you see crews coming up in hazmat gear and start sealing off the fronts of apartment buildings with people inside them.
6: It is. I mean, the Chinese call these um, uh, white monsters. The Numbers of them are extraordinary. Sometimes they're police, sometimes they're health workers. Sometimes they're just workers putting up uh, fences, metal fences in front of apartment flats or, or ceiling entrances. Um, Shanghai, however, surprisingly perhaps, has been criticized by some central authorities and some people in Beijing for having locked down areas of the city, not the entire city. Uh, the feeling that if they'd been more thorough, uh, they might have curbed the, co- the zero COVID uh, problems, that, problems that emerged. I think the fundamental problem, Scott, is that It's not clear to me at all how they're going to get out of this bind. It's one thing to save a lot of lives, which they did, but how do you exit from the strategy where a handful of cases shuts down a whole city?
2: And again, these were measures that were used, meaning lockdowns, when vaccination was either not available or extremely scarce. At this point of the pandemic, it seems kind of odd. Why not? Uh, and, we, and we've heard that their vaccine is inferior. It's not the new uh, mRNA type of vaccine like a Pfizer or a Moderna, not as uh, good with the variants and such. So why not call Pfizer?
6: What they should have done, of course, hindsight is, is always clear. Mm-hmm. Um, they should have done was important vast amounts of mRNA vaccines. Chinese pharmaceutical industry and their scientists are perfectly capable of creating them, but they haven't been able to create them at the speed, at the warp speed, whatever that they're needed for such a large population. Their vaccines work, but they're not as effective. They may not be effective at all against Omicron. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, they also, while they're it's widely disseminated, they haven't, curiously, for all this toughness on locking down, they haven't been as tough on Insisting people get vaccinated—you think the two would go yeah. together. So a lot of older people, in particular, are reluctant and haven't uh, haven't been vaccinated. So that again, creates another barrier to opening up. Um, it their death levels have been very low, but what will happen when they do open up, particularly with a lot of older people who haven't been vaccinated?
2: And, and, and let's t- let's touch on that, Gordon, because as you said, uh, and we certainly saw here, what happens to the older generation when they are not uh, vaccinated. So, if you're going to the trouble of actually boarding people into apartment buildings. Is mandatory vaccine that that much uh, you know out of the question? We we think of of how we had ninety percent of the population vaccinated, or certainly into the high eighties, and we're still screaming that you know for the last five or ten percent. Uh, why the lockdowns, the zero tolerance, but not mandatory vaccination of some sort? You'd think they'd be the first to do that.
6: It, there's no easy answer to that. I, I, curiously, I think that their policies have been a mixture of the rational, i.e social distancing, uh, keeping people from traveling uh, largely, certainly keeping them from traveling internationally, and, and a mix of the irrational, as in, they don't even have haven't even put that much pressure on older people to get vaccinated. Many have been, but not enough. And we know that for aged people in particular, the risks are far higher. So it's a, uh, it's, it's not crystal clear. In some cases, they seem to be following first rate medical advice, and they've got first rate doctors. In other cases, it seems it's more about control and a little bit less about medicine. Um, any,
2: I, You were saying, what is the exit strategy here? Um, and again, we've seen with the Omicron virus, not as uh, deadly, but certainly, but then that's with people that have been vaccinated, uh, but certainly spreads like wildfires. So do you wait till more people get it, or do you try to hope no one else does?
6: Well, I think they can keep the numbers... Down, by continuing the heavy lockdowns, rolling lockdowns, depending where they find it. The problem is twofold. One, the people I think are getting fed up. We saw some of that in Shanghai, where people were maybe not demonstrating per se, but shouting from their balconies and complaining. And secondly, the economic effects are beginning to bite. Uh-huh. Uh, the economy slowed down. Unemployment is up, particularly for young people. Some of that may have been the effects of the of the Russia war and the broader COVID struggle the world's been going through, higher inflation, et cetera. But some of it is clearly COVID-related. And and so there are costs to carrying on with the current uh, procedures. But I think they will carry on, at least until after the Party Congress in October, because Xi Jinping has invested so much personally in this strategy and his success. A risk, in my view, for him would be if they were to open up tomorrow Um, or had to import a vast number of of foreign vaccines, that would be seen as a failure, fundamental failure. Given he's put himself in a position to be responsible for everything, he has to take responsibility for that. And I don't think, at least until after October, they will be bold enough or brave enough to change course.
2: We remember here in Canada, with the delay in getting the vaccine, we were watching other parts of the world, months months ahead of us, getting the vaccination while we weren't, uh, and how upset Canadians become about, uh, as a result of that. What about China? I mean, well, uh, maybe they won't get the message, but as the rest of the world opens up, they're recoiling. How does that play with the citizenry?
6: Well, there's a very good point. Of course, China's a special place in the sense that it doesn't have a free and yeah. open Um, media presence like like we do, like your show, for example, where people can have views and express them freely. So I'm not sure that for the average Chinese, they are fully aware of how much better some of the foreign vaccines are, mRNA ones that are largely US and European uh, origin. Uh, China will produce these, but they haven't done it quick enough. But I'm not sure that people know that. They're reading state media only, and that talks up their successes. And Points up the failures elsewhere, large death tolls in, in the United States and Europe, et cetera. Uh, I think they tend to largely accept that that's, it, that is the case, that it's accurate. But of course, there are many, even millions, of Chinese who find ways around the media blackouts and have come to their own conclusions. But I don't think that's typical of the average, average person who's 100% dependent on state media or on rumors.
2: Gordon Holden with us, Director Emeritus of the China Institute, Professor of Political Science, University of Alberta as always Gordon, thank you so much for the time be well.
6: Thank you Scott, the same to you and to your listeners, thank you
4: when there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart
0: of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXM1.
2: We all know uh, what is going on with uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Here we are, day 63. And we've heard terms, we talked about this yesterday, Petro petrodictatorship and, and how uh, energy is being used to blackmail uh, parts of Europe. Russia, of course, uh, is supplying a lot of of energy to europe and with the war that is going on obviously uh we're seeing a shift in all of that uh interesting article in the globe and mail uh by dr david welch highlighting how former chancellor of germany angela merkel has put the country in a tough energy situation now with russia's ongoing war in ukraine and energy related tensions uh, tensions rising across europe this all related to uh about a 10-year plan to slowly wean germany off nuclear energy which of course uh, we know is uh, is part of a renewable toolbox and yet here has left Germany very susceptible to the wrath of Russia to talk more about this author of the piece dr. David Welsh professor political science University uh, research chair at the University of Waterloo and the School of International Affairs and with us now doctor thank you for the time I hope you're well
3: good to be with you Scott I am thanks
2: Was there that much pressure uh, a decade or so ago to get Germany off of nuclear power? I mean, you know, I'm old enough to remember uh, Pickering and Darlington and when all this started up and and, and how big a piece this is for Ontario. And Germany very much on the cutting edge of renewables. What happened here?
3: Well, Germany actually decided more than a decade ago to move off of nuclear. And that's mostly because uh, the German polity is by... By nature, pretty anti-nuclear in its sentiments, so German voters have never been entirely comfortable with the idea of having nuclear uh, energy in their mix. And um, the decision was to sort of get rid of it eventually. Angela Merkel came into office um, thinking that that was a bad move, and uh, had, she decided, provisionally at least, to actually extend the life of uh, the German nuclear reactors that had not. shut down when she assumed her position. Uh, But after the Fukushima uh, nuclear accident in Japan, she suddenly very abruptly decided to close uh, a number of the reactors immediately and to phase out the rest by 2022. And in fact, just the other day, three of the remaining six were shuttered according to that plan, all in the context of (laughs) trying to find a way to reduce Germany's energy dependence on Russia.
2: So, um, what? Obviously, the protests, the the alarm was 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 not loud that she felt she had to do this. Uh, that being said, Japan and Germany, not apples and oranges here.
3: Yeah, it, I, from my perspective, it was an enormous mistake. Uh, obviously, the Fukushima disaster was serious. It was the second largest mm-hmm. nuclear accident ever after uh, the Chernobyl incident in 1986. Uh, but it was caused by a strange configuration of factors that simply don't apply to the German case. And uh, as I argued today in in my piece in the Globe and Mail, uh, it very nearly didn't even uh, happen in Japan. It was a disaster could easily have been averted if uh, a few things had just broken slightly differently. So uh, we have a a global anti-nuclear backlash to an incident that was unique, uh, that was uh, uncharacteristic of almost any other nuclear situation anywhere else in the world. And the consequence is that uh, we've been backfilling energy needs all over the planet with much dirtier, much deadlier energy sources. Um, Hundreds of thousands of people have died since uh, Fukushima, who would not be dead today if the world had continued to uh, use nuclear energy at the level they had done beforehand.
2: Uh, Again, we've been toying with nuclear energy for quite a long time. Have we not learned how to overcome a lot of these challenges that, that made people fearful 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago?
3: Well, no system is ever perfect. All systems are subject to failure and uh, that goes for nuclear plants as well. And from time to time, there are incidents at nuclear power generation plants. In Canada, we've had uh, five or six, I think over the course of our history. Uh, The key point is that uh, none of them has involved a fatality. None of them has involved any significant um, cost in life or even in property, because we do have a basic understanding of the causes of accidents and, and how to respond to them. Um, That was true in Japan as well, but it was this, as I said, bizarre combination of factors that uh, just led to the meltdown at Fukushima. Um, For example, if that reactor had been a Japanese design, it would not have uh, melted down because the Japanese put their backup power generation systems on high ground because tsunamis are a problem in Japan, but it was an American design. So the backup power generators were underground because of the United States. The problem is tornadoes and hurricanes and so right. on. Uh, so it's, it was just a very strange event all around and therefore not, not a good template to use as a way of estimating nuclear risk.
2: Considering where Germany is now and, and the rest of Europe, uh, are attitudes changing towards nuclear? Can you see the world's position on nuclear changing?
3: I don't see a lot of uh, evidence of a change of attitude at the popular level. I see a great deal of evidence of change of attitude at the policymaking level. Uh, Everyone who understands the challenge of climate change also understands that there is no way to meet our climate change targets or even exceed them um, with less of an overshoot than we're headed for, unless nuclear is part of our mix. And I get the fact that people don't like the concept of nuclear energy. I get the fact that Radiation is a scary concept in the abstract. You can't see it. You can't even know necessarily that you've been subject to it. And uh, there's a lot of popular culture about the horrors of radioactivity. So, of course, we're we're all imbued with this. But we forget that we live in a universe that is chock full of radiation and that Mm -hmm. the Earth is being bathed in radiation on a daily basis that anywhere you are on this planet you are actually being subject to radiation, and we wouldn't exist if it weren't for radiation. So it's it's not the case that radiation is across the board a bad thing. There's just certain contexts in which you don't want to encounter radiation. And then that's what nuclear safety is all designed to try to provide. The big challenge, by the way, for civilian nuclear energy as we know it is storing waste. Yeah, and that yeah. is a challenge. Right? We have to we have to make sure we spend the time and the money to store properly, to guard storage sites. You know these ideas about dumping it deep in the ground in deep geological formations and then forgetting about it. That to my mind, that's lunatic. Um, we, we really do owe the planet uh, the duty of custody of our own nuclear waste until we actually do figure out a technical way of solving that long term problem.
2: Dr. David Welsh with us, Professor of Political Science, University Research Chair at the University of Waterloo, Basili School of International Affairs, talking about the use of n- nuclear energy as part of the mix and the loss of it where it has left Germany. David, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You're welcome, you too. I'm sure, as you know, as uh, per listening to the newscast, today marks a national day of mourning, and the family support group Threads of Life is calling on workplaces to take this time to reflect and ensure their organizations put safety first for their employees. The Association of Workplace Tragedy Family Support, known as Threads of Life, is currently supporting the healing journey of more than 3,200 families across uh, family members across Canada who have suffered from a workplace fatality, traumatic life-altering injury, or occupational disease. Uh, this weekend, an in-person Steps for Life walk will be held in Hamilton, Steps for Life. Uh, Walking for Families of Workplace Tragedy is a 5K fundraiser to help support families affected by these sorts of situations. It's a, a unique unique way to educate your community about the devastating rippling effects that happens when there is a workplace tragedy. And my goodness, today, uh, uh, more news about this and two, two, two this week, uh, which is, is, is three too many. Let's bring in Shirley Hickman, Threads of Life Executive Director, and is with us now. Shirley, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
7: Yeah, I am well. Thank you, Scott. And thank you for having us. It is an important day for Canadians to stop and reflect.
2: It's interesting because, especially being in Hamilton and the heavy industry city that it has been for forever, uh, you know, this, especially in the old days, common, unfortunately, common occurrences. And we think that we're smarter now and we're safer now, but are we necessarily, surely? I mean, we're hearing of two deaths just this week in the Hammer.
7: Mm -hmm. Yes, and sadly, Scott, you know, so... I've really only been involved with uh, workplace uh, awareness for the last 26 years since our son Tim was killed in a workplace explosion in London, Ontario. Mm. And, And sadly, the numbers aren't changing on number of fatalities per day in Canada. Every day, three workers aren't coming home to their families. That leaves, as you've already mentioned, a huge ripple effect in the community
2: my condolences for the loss of of your son many years ago, um, is, you know, we constantly hear lack of training, lack of training. How, how big a factor is that in all of this?
7: Well, training I think is certainly paramount, right? But it, it goes well beyond training. It, it, um, it goes on ongoing training and the ongoing awareness of workplace safety and what changes in the culture and in what has changed today from yesterday. And you think about right now when we've lived through the past two years of the pandemic with employers having to change the uh, how people are working, they've had to change shifts, they had not had as many people on in the same place office buildings have yeah, had workers working at home and now you know people are coming back together and what has changed hmm. so how do we ensure that safety today is the same as it was two week, two years ago
2: I, I remember seeing as you go down through the industrial core and such you know so many days without a you know an, an industrial accident this really seemed to be a movement have we grown lax And and obviously, as you mentioned, with changes in the last two years with a pandemic, uh, obviously, that's occupied people's attention as well.
7: Mm. Well, I don't know that we've grown lax, right? When you think that uh, the numbers of family members not coming home is still three per day. And we all know that You know, across Canada, three per day is a thousand workers a year not coming home to their families. That's a way too too many, and those numbers are not going down. And then you talk about the number of people who are living with, you know, traumatic injuries, uh, you know, a brain injury, they've lost a limb or an eye, and they live their rest of their lives uh, totally different from how they ever perceived life would normally be.
2: What's missing? How can we how can we not learn from this? How can we not do more uh, to make this a priority? What do we what's missing here?
7: Well, I always think it's the key to awareness, right? So you you've mentioned steps for life, and that's about promoting awareness, right? When you see hundreds of people walking in yellow shirts and promoting awareness, it's about I always say to people when I you know, do a presentation, look out for your co-worker as if they were your best friends. You don't let your best friend uh, drink and drive, so don't let your co-worker work on If we all looked out for each other, we would be a much safer environment
2: and and what about a message to the workers themselves and 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 as you said it's important we look out for each other but we also have to look out for ourselves and 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 what do what do we need to do as workers when we walk into a situation like this
7: I think that every worker has a responsibility to to um, work safely for themselves. They have a responsibility to walk into their workstation and say, what's changed today? Is everything in the uh, proper order? Am I in a good ma- mindset? Uh, and, and if... Something has changed. They should feel comfortable to go to their employer and ask a question. And I would hope that all employers would be open to a question that's asked respectably and and responsibly. What about
2: challenges as a result of COVID-19, as a result of the pandemic? Has it changed things? Mm-hmm.
7: Well, I certainly think it's changed the way people work, right? And it's yeah. changed, um, you know, so we have People working from home, how do we know that people working from home are working safely? Mm. Is their uh, desk set up ergonomically correct? Um, When people are working on an industrial line, how do we know that they're comfortable working so close in proximity to somebody else? How has, when they're wearing protective equipment like face masks now, how do we know that that doesn't impair their ability to to see something uh, in close proximity to them. Um, How do we ensure that people are working comfortably when they're wearing protective equipment?
2: Shirley Hickman with us, Threads of Life Executive Director uh, Association today, marking the National Day of Mourning, a family support group uh, that helps those that have been affected by a workplace injury or death. Shirley, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
7: Thank you. I would really hope that all your listeners would reach out to anyone they know who may be living with a life-altering injury or occupational disease or a fatality and have them uh, reach out to Threads of Life, and we're here to support them.
2: Thank you, Shirley. Good luck moving forward.
7: Thank you.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: Tom Wilson, Mohawk author, visual artist and musician. Beautiful Scars will have its first screening. It's a documentary on the book at Hot Docs May 2nd at the Toronto International Film Festival, Bell uh, Bell Lightbox 2. The film traces back in time to unravel musician, artist and author Tom Wilson's biographical history and eventually follows him to the Kennewaki Reserve where he explores his Mohawk heritage and meets For the first time, the birth family he didn't know existed. From two-time CSA-nominated Métis director Shane Belcourt, Beautiful Scars is a poignant narrative crafted by Indigenous director through intimate, detailed interviews with Wilson. Belcourt unpacks an astounding story about a secretive upbringing, a self-destructive music career, and the moments that led to the discovery of the shocking Stranger Than Fiction Lie Tom Wilson had been fed his entire life, and he is with us now. Tom, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing good, Scott. Boy. I watched this last night with my wife, and uh, it was gripping. It was so moving, Uh, and my first thought is congratulations to you. Uh, Was this just an emotional roller coaster, emotionally exhausting for you to do this project, or was it Um cathartic? It was a bit of a free
8: fall as far as filming goes and uh, recording the interviews. It was a definite free fall, Scott. Um, Viewing it back, well, that's another story. That's a hard pill to swallow. Um, I will say that uh, writing the book, Scott, when I sat down to write the book, I felt that I was the last man standing and that I had to tell the truth as I knew it, my version of the truth. My mother, who I wasn't even sure was going to be... uh, going to be interested or agreeable to be in front of a camera she threw down really hard Janie uh my mother Janie she um she's the star of this movie there's no doubt about it and she led the way she led the truth and she said things I think that she's been waiting 82 years to say Uh, she decided to say it in this movie
2: what a courageous woman, and and what a story! And I'm sure that story resonates with so many people. What's it like? Well, well, obviously it hasn't been viewed by a lot since. But let me let me let me ask you this because you talked about watching it. Were you involved as this was being put together, or did you see the final presentation? What was that like for you?
8: Uh, well, I've seen several cuts, Scott, only because I I was uh, I wrote the soundtrack mm-hmm. uh, for the movie also, so I saw it in in different stages. And just like any project, any creative uh, uh, any, any, any creative process, it's, it's frustrating to share it with people because people don't get it. I mean, it'd be like if I was doing a painting for you, Scott, and I showed it to you on the first couple hours that I was working on it, you're going to say, oh, my God this looks like crap, Tom. Mm. (laughs) But if I I actually present you the finished product, you're going to hopefully say, oh, my God, Tom, this is beautiful. Thank you for this incredible piece of art. So it's the same thing with viewing the film. It was uh, in its early stages. Shane was feeling his way through it and figuring out how the story should be told. And um, by by the last cut, I thought that it was really beautiful. I thought that the music worked great, and I thought that... uh that Janie uh was amazing my daughter Madeline was amazing um they were they filled in the blanks on the truth that I wasn't able to tell watching it back uh it took me three try it took me three uh viewings to get through the entire movie because it was really it was too hard yeah
2: Wow, that's incredible. You know, as I'm watching you tell this journey, uh, tell the story of your journey and, and trying to discover who you are, I, I have to think how many people have the same sort of story or can somehow relate to this. And even as a Canadian, you grew up without an identity. This country has grown up without an identity because a piece of his history has been removed. Uh, what do you th- what do you anticipate the feedbacks going to be? Because I think you're going to hit a lot of common denominators here.
8: Well, there's a lot of common denominators in this story. It's not just uh, when I when I went out and started talking about uh, this story, even before I read the book, um, in theaters across Canada and in the U.S. Um, I was met with people coming up to me. Not all Indigenous people, just people who were coming up who had. Uh, adoption stories who yeah. had stories of separation uh, from their families stories about people who also didn't uh, who grew up without uh knowing their their identity mm-hmm. um, you know the the world tries really hard to uh, to make us into something uh, often to control us and I really feel that uh, the Canadian government's work um building residential schools uh, that is that's something that that has a lasting effect on Canadians all Canadians Indigenous uh, and and settlers doesn't matter this story is horrific Canada I mean itself I mean we how many how many children have we found Mm -hmm. buried in the ground Scott you know that that and that that belongs to Canada I believe and just let me say this properly Canada's attempt to kill off an, the entire indigenous population of this land is one of the grossest and inhumane sagas in the history of the planet and it continues today. We Indians, my mother, my ancestors have been overcoming hatred at the hands of colonialism for 700 years now. And I think that this film is just a drop in the bucket. It's a blip on the scream, Scott, as far as these issues go, but at least, you know what? I can go to bed at night and sleep knowing that I've put a blip on the screen or that I've been able to tell a story, uh, another story in the uh, story of the 60s scoop and uh, in the Indigenous state in Canada.
2: You were talking about Madeline. What was it like for your kids to watch you? go through this metamorphosis for you just to discover this because there you can see you can see the frustration and and anger but what's it like now what's it like for them to have seen you discover this um i think i
8: hopefully it's been inspiring for them in some way not necessarily me being inspiring but hopefully uh i believe that they've been inspired themselves and they they've they've stretched and they've grown and they feel their own independence and they've discovered them themselves as as indigenous people now in this country so their concerns haven't shifted they've always been beautiful hearted loving uh generous people but um now they're uh beautiful loving big hearted generous indigenous
2: people (laughs) how is your life different now we've only got about a minute left how is your life different how is how is life better for tom now well my life is fantastic scott
8: come on now Mm. i uh i am i'm happier than i've ever been in my life i'm more productive and more creative than i've ever been in my life um i feel uh this film more than even though i'm a part of it uh i feel this film is a gift. To me and my family foremost, I think that Shane Belcourt, who is Métis, an Indigenous director, uh, was the only person who could really tell this story along with my family. He, uh, he sheltered us uh, the right ways, and he got the truth out of us in the right way. Um, and beautiful scars, you know what? It's uh, the fact that we are premiering at Hot Docs uh, next week. That is thrilling. Uh, the only thing I'll say in this last minute is uh everything that we uh, take we have to give back and uh, my 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 contribution is that I've started the uh, indigenous scholarship at McMaster University in loving memory of Bunny Wilson. We're doing two concerts at the end of this month at the end of May on the 27th and 28th featuring uh, orchestra myself uh, Tara Lightfoot Colin Linden and uh and more guests to come. And all the money goes to um to raising money for this indigenous scholarship because every indigenous student that graduates from university is a win
2: against colonialism. Tom Wilson with us, Mohawk author, visual artist, musician Lee Harvey Osman, Blackie and the Rodeo Kings, Junk House, and of course the new documentary now film Beautiful Scars. My goodness, Tom, it's a masterpiece. I honestly believe the best is yet to come for you. Congratulations. Great work.
8: Thanks, Scott. Love you and take care. Love Hamilton, too. You guys be good.
0: If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve
2: into the issue until he is. You're listening to
0: Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
2: Interesting, as we come out of, hopefully, a global pandemic and uh, we are moving on and learning to live with it or whatever it is that we're doing, does wearing a mask change the first impression you make on people? Remember when we were first... wearing. Wearing them and had them on, and then you know uh, you, you weren't sure how to read people's faces and so on and so forth. And uh, you know you had two or three people in a room talking; you weren't sure who it was because you're all safe distance, of course. Well, a new study from Brock University has looked into uh, masking and first impression and how that uh, affects. I guess, how we establish uh, that very important first impression. Let's bring in uh, Catherine Mondlock, Professor, Director, Face Perception Lab, Department of Psychology, Brock University, and with us now. Catherine, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
1: Sure. I hope you are as well.
2: Tell everybody what you're doing or what you've done here, what the objective was.
1: Right. So the objective was we study first impressions, and we've all heard the saying, uh, don't judge a book by its cover, and in the same Hmm. way, we shouldn't look at somebody and make impressions about how um, trustworthy or competent or intelligent they are, but we do. We form first impressions of other people every day. And so in this study, we wondered whether putting masks on faces, the kinds of masks that we've been wearing during this pandemic, uh, we wondered whether those masks might level the playing field a little bit so that people that have a face Mm. that naturally looks a bit less trustworthy Um, might not be treated differently than people with a trustworthy face
2: wow this is fascinating so we're getting less visual information uh with a mask on and and mostly just the eyes which they say are a great teller of people anyway so uh what did did you find out what what happens when you remove two-thirds of what people can see on a face
1: so with the, with a few very, very subtle differences, what we found is that putting a mask on the face has very little influence on first impressions. Really? So children whose face gives them the benefit of the doubt when something ambiguous has happened uh, get that same benefit of the doubt when their face is partially covered with a mask. Um, older adults who are perceived as more competent than others, older adults are still perceived as more competent when they're wearing that mask. So it seems to have very little influence on our perceptions of other people.
2: So it's more personality than our visual uh, image.
1: Well, it's our visual image because in these studies, all we do is show people a picture of a face. Oh, and man. for some participants, the face had, was completely visible. And for other participants, a, a mask covered the bottom half of the face. And then we ask people questions. Um, about the faces that they were seeing and the judgments were very, very similar uh, with or without a mask. Are you surprised? So there's some facial cues that we use
2: for this. Are you surprised at the outcome of this?
1: I was surprised. I thought that, um, you know, we may still form first impressions but the effects might be a bit more subtle but it seems as though there's enough visual information in the top half of the face in that eye region um, that carries the cues that you and I are using every day when we encounter strangers on the street.
2: So these were pictures that you showed people as opposed to an actual video or wherever where you would say, for example, when you're, uh, I would presume with, with a mask on, we may be more inclined to look into one's eyes.
1: So that's all the information you have available, right? So in one of the studies, for example, we showed p- people a, a picture of two children playing And the picture was ambiguous. So you could interpret it as two children playing nicely or as one child about to knock the other child's tower down. (laughs) And your interpretation of that scene depends on whether we put in a a face of a child who looks quote-unquote nice uh, as opposed to not nice. And even when that child is wearing a mask, uh, the child with a nice face, uh, people interpret the scene as friendly and two children playing And when a child has a face that's rated as not nice, Uh, people interpret that scene as one child about to to harm the other child or knock a tower over. And, you know, these first impressions influence how we treat other people. They're not accurate, uh, but they influence our behavior. And so we sort of hope that masks would would, uh, make things a little bit more equitable, but it turns out that's not the case.
2: Uh, after two years of all of this, what what have we learned? What, what's the conclusion? Because, again, we've been behind these for two years, it seems.
1: Yeah, I think what we've learned is that, you know, it can be a bit challenging sometimes to recognize somebody with a mask, especially if we're not expecting them. But um, we're very good at, at reading faces. And if you think about it, people wear sunglasses, uh, yeah. which covers up the eyes, and yet we can still recognize people and, and read their facial expressions so maybe we shouldn't be surprised that when we do the opposite and and put a mask on uh, we're still quite good i think what it says is that we're very very good at at reading faces and uh, we don't need very much information to do that
2: it'd be fascinating to see someone with a, a mask and sunglasses yeah. What the impression is? <laughs> that's well, the next that, round.
1: That's your Canadian wearing a toque down by the <laughs>
2: Exactly, and yeah, exactly. It. And then who knows what it could be? Uh, Catherine Monlock with us, professor, director, of Face Perception Lab, Department of Psychology, Brock University. Our first impression while wearing a mask. Fascinating stuff, Catherine. Thanks for the time. Be well.
1: Thank you. You as well. Bye bye.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: All right. As we mentioned earlier on this afternoon, about 4 o'clock, the budget came down. Uh, the difference here is, uh, obviously, we got an election on the horizon. And to talk more about all of this and dissect what has happened, let's bring in Colin DeMello, Queens Park Bureau Chief for Global News. He is with us now. Colin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, as well as I can be after reading a budget. <laughs> exactly. You must be cross-eyed by now. Uh, well, obviously... Yeah, I can see that. Obviously, uh, election coming June 2nd. How does this change the dynamic of this budget? Why is this perhaps a little different than those in the past?
4: Well, because this isn't really a budget. It's more of a campaign document. So today, as an example, the Ontario legislature rose and it's not going to sit. The Queen's Park is not going to return until um, September. So this is really it. You know, the budget is not necessarily a budget. It's a campaign document because in order for the budget to be passed, it has to be put to voters. Voters <clears throat> have to decide whether they want the Ontario Progressive Conservatives to return to power and then they get to reintroduce the same budget, which is why, um, you know, this has a really different feel to it. Right. And and a lot of us are looking at this with some added scrutiny because, you know, these are the platform planks that eventually could get Doug Ford reelected or rejected.
2: What's been the opposition reaction so far?
4: So the opposition reaction has been kind of focused on a few things. Affordability is one of the things that they say the government missed the mark on. So the government has, uh, you know, announced a new uh, tax credit for those who make fifty thousand dollars and less. It would effectively mean that you know they they would be paying minimal taxes, personal income taxes, and they would be able to keep about three hundred dollars more of their take-home pay. So about you know uh, about eleven $1, hundred dollars $1, to twelve hundred dollars of their take-home pay in in total. Well, they're saying, listen, you know, what about those who are are struggling to buy or afford a home? What about those who are struggling with rent? What about those who are uh, struggling with, uh, you know, putting food on the table? Where is the help for them? Uh, They didn't really see that from the affordability perspective, which was, you know, to be honest, a little bit surprising because affordability is one of those top issues for a lot of people in this election campaign.
2: What stands out for you in this budget? Obviously, the, the build, build, build. That's what I'm seeing here. Build, build,
4: build. You're absolutely correct. That is the strategy that Doug Ford is hoping will get him reelected. So, what they're looking to do here is spend about hundred and sixty billion dollars over the next ten years on all kinds of capital infrastructure projects. Things like building the Highway 413, which would connect, uh, you know, the 407 to the 404 and the 401, uh, widening the 401 in some spots. Uh, they're they're looking at, you know, uh, new hospitals. Redeveloped hospitals, certainly the ones uh, in in Hamilton as well, and um, you know, building new long term care homes, transit projects as well. That's where they're looking to to put some of this infrastructure spending. It's it's one of those things where the government is hoping that by putting billions of dollars into infrastructure, they'll be able to help workers who obviously need to build those things. Right. You can't build a road without a construction worker and all of the teams of people who you know, have to get the asphalt there, who have to uh, get all the machinery and the equipment there and have to actually build the thing. So that's what they're really hoping will will help lift up a th- like thousands of people's with new jobs, with you know, improved positions, um, et cetera. I don't know how that translates to the average voter. I mean, you know, we like to drive on those roads. We need hospitals when we need them. But do we really think about the state of the repair of them or, you know, how these construction projects should look like over the next 10 years? Uh, So I I don't know how that will actually translate into votes when it actually comes time for people to put, um, you know, their, their pen to paper.
2: Uh, you talked about how now the, uh, this is dissolved and we move on to an election campaign, no debate, no opposition at this point. Will we now see opposition solidify their platforms? Obviously, for the last few weeks, we've seen dribbles and drabbles here as, as it is theoretically already started. But now will we see what the opposition has? Will we see some sort of definite platform from them at this point?
4: So the NDP was first to actually release their entire platform. What they didn't do was fully cost their entire platform. And they said the reason they were going to do that was because they were waiting for the Ontario government to table its budget so that they could kind of Um, You know, compare and contrast what their numbers are and then use that as a baseline, a benchmark to say, okay, well, this is how much more we're spending in comparison to the Ontario budget. So the Ontario Liberals said the same thing. They said, you know, we will have our budget out soon, Ontario uh, Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca had promised. We just don't know exactly when. The big question here, honestly, is going to be about costing of platforms. The the PC Party, a lot of their promises, like building Highway 413, as an example, it didn't come with a price tag attached to it. Um, the Ontario NDP, they have a number of uh, promises that didn't come with price tags attached as well. Same thing with the Ontario Liberals. So, you know, it is really important for voters to know what these promises are going to cost them, because it's not the money of the ontario liberal ndp or the progressive conservatives it's your money and mine and they're just spending it so we need to know how much these projects are going to cost or how much these promises are going to cost before the actual vote i don't know if we're necessarily going to get that granular level of detail i'm hoping but i don't think so
2: ontario budget is out and the games have now begun colin DeMello with us queens park bureau chief global news make sure you're watching global tonight for more on all of this colin thanks so much for the time be well my pleasure thanks for having me Matt Gurney is with us, co-founder of The Line, a substack magazine, also a columnist for The National Post and TVO. Good afternoon, Matt. How you doing today? I'm okay, how are you? I'm doing very well. Interesting column today, and a lot of people asking questions about the Emergencies Act. Uh, A lot of this, uh, people have moved on, looking at other things in their life, and and inflation, and and, and how to pay for everything. Uh, But obviously, this is coming back up with the uh, inquiry, but many are asking how thorough this is going to be. Are we going to find out what led up to the calling of the Emergencies Act, or is this all about examining the convoy and it's it's operators
9: honestly the best answer i can give you is an honest one i don't know i mean it needs to be both and whether or not it is both those things is going to come down to uh either the willingness of the government to cooperate or the ability if they choose not to cooperate it's going to come down to the ability of either the independent inquiry or the parliamentary committee to compel cooperation um My gut feeling, unfortunately, and I wish I did not feel this way, is I don't think the federal government is going to cooperate. These are guys who promised a new era of transparency and have decidedly failed to deliver. Um, So I think they're going to stonewall. I think they're going to do everything they can to focus the issue on precisely half of what happened here. And here's the thing. There are two things we need to investigate, and we need to urgently investigate both of them. We need to investigate the origins, the funding, the organization, and the uh, intentions, the motives of the blockades and the convoy protest. We 100% need to do that. We also need to scrutinize and have accountability for how our governments responded. And I think our government, federally in particular, is going to want 100% of the attention to be on 50% of what needs to be studied here because that will keep uh, the public's attention off their own role in responding. And it's not just just about, oh gosh, they didn't do a good job responding. We cannot forget for one moment that the failure of governments to respond quickly and decisively made things worse. It was not like, oh, it's kind of a, well, yeah, we could have done better, our inability to handle the situation properly was a red flag to others who might have been considering joining in. The longer this thing dragged on, the more self-sustaining it became. So any suggestion that different levels of government, Ottawa municipal, Ontario provincial, or federal, do not have some share of the blame here is really, really wrong. And I am, I am personally very worried That our federal government is trying to structure the hearings and the inquiry in a way that keeps it from having to answer questions it might find awkward.
2: If we focus on strictly the time that the Emergency Act was called and what happened thereafter, uh, that is not addressing the problem. Because obviously by the time three weeks had rolled around, uh, something needed to be done. That was obvious. But the prime minister, he spoke more in the first two days of the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine than he did in the first two weeks of this protest. Are we going to focus on how this was sort of shoved off from the prime minister who that's who they all came to see, uh, to the mayor and then to the police chief and and what have you, because it's that first two weeks that are extremely crucial in this.
9: I think, I think you're right about that. By the third week, I think there was broad recognition that we were in uh, trouble, that there was a big problem and that we needed fairly dramatic action to solve it. Um, the first two weeks, and this is my assessment, so don't take this to the bank. This is my opinion, and God knows I've been wrong before. But I think there was a lot of um, jurisdictional buck passing going on. Whoa, we're not going to deal with this. This is Ontario's problem. Ontario, goes, the hell it is. This is a federal problem. And meanwhile, the city of Ottawa is slowly vanishing into a black hole of incompetence, right? Like, there was no effective leadership for the first two weeks. And I don't honestly know why. Like, it could be jurisdictional confusion.
2: But let's be it, honest here, Matt. I mean, there is a lot of jurisdictional buck passing here. No ways about yeah. it. But this is, the you know, this is the federal precinct here. This is Ottawa, the House of Commons. And this all starts at the top. Let's be honest here.
9: Hon- honestly, I don't know if I agree with that. I really?
2: How come? Think the
9: main responsibility for this, in a weird way, fell on the provincial government to do something. But I think Doug Ford was happy to see Justin Trudeau hang out to dry on this one because the symbolic power of Ottawa as the federal capital overweighs the fact that the city of Ottawa is an Ontario municipality.
2: But that street is the federal precinct. That is federal territory.
9: Sort of, but the the initial call for help should have, I mean, this is just my opinion, right? Like yeah. we, we all became instant experts back at mm-hmm. the time. I think the Ontario government should have acted faster And I think in the end, the federal government probably overreacted trying to make up for the fact that this had become a political crisis for them, not just a national security one. The honest answer is nobody looks good. The city of Ottawa failed. The province of Ontario failed and the federal government failed. And I would like to think we would get some independent answers on this. But my gut feeling is that the, the Ottawa municipal government will be spared because it has no real interest to investigate itself. The Ontario government will be spared uh, because it has no real interest in investigating itself. Only the language of the Emergencies Act is forcing the federal government to investigate itself. And as you and I already said, they seem very interested in kind of deflecting as much of that scrutiny as far away from them as possible.
2: Does the public care about this story anymore, Matt?
9: No, and they really really should um but as far as i can tell they do not at all and i get it like we've got covid we've got a war in europe we've got inflation we've got a provincial election coming up but i i actually view this crisis very much in line with all the others right because the specifics of what was happening in ottawa around the borders is obviously very unique right but on top of all of this what we also saw was Canadian government incompetence and inability to react mm. to fast-moving crises.
2: Yeah.
9: Tell me that does not have bearings on COVID, the economy, and the war in Europe. Right? Yeah. Like when, There's that old saying, right? Like, when, when uh, seconds count, help is only minutes away. <laughs> and when it comes to Canadian federal governments, when seconds count, decisions are only weeks away.
2: Good point. Very good point. All right. Only got about 30 seconds left. Your thoughts about this coming weekend and what could be happening there. Um, What do you see happening? Uh,
9: Look, I don't don't pretend to be an expert on this. I'm watching from uh, afar like most of us here. The one thing I think we could say with uh, certainty is that the police will be ready this time because never, never underestimate the power of humiliation to change behavior. And I think the Ottawa police were humiliated. So I think they'll be ready. I'm hoping for peace, order, lawful protests, but I will definitely be paying attention this weekend, yeah.
2: Matt Gurney with his co-founder of The Line, a Substack magazine, also columnist with The National Post and TVO. Matt, thanks for the time. Be well.
0: Uh, you too. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: Scott Rodley, host of The Scott Rodley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you are well. I am great. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. How concerned are you about Rolling Thunder? How concerned are you that um, uh, this this group the of Tom, protesters the Tom,
10: Hanks movie, or the Tom Cruise movie?
2: <laughs> you know what I, I keep, keep like, thinking I of.
10: like Nicole Kidman in it all that much, but I don't wouldn't say I'm concerned about it.
2: Uh, you know, I think of the Seinfeld episode where they're all in the scooters terrorizing yes. terrorizing the sidewalk. Remember, they wouldn't get off the sidewalk, so they're you know three and four it's abreast, going going at road. about two miles an hour. <laughs> That's yeah. what I see here. Anyway, Story. boy, will we be laughed at if we're wrong? Uh, but what are your thoughts? What do you What do you think will happen here?
10: What do you think? I mean, I, I you tell me.
2: Uh, I think they'll go in one end of the city, and they'll do the little thing, and then they'll go out the other, and that'll be it.
10: Yeah, I I, I I've, I know that they've been talking about, you know, we're not going to allow any more blockades to happen. I, I don't know if anyone has noticed, but it's a lot harder to blockade with a motorcycle <laughs> yeah. than with a, a, you know, a semi-truck, uh, you know. Um I don't expect you know. Which, that, that takes me I back. Expect that... Nothing more. I expect nothing more than Friday the 13th at Port Dover, and yeah. this is what's concerning. Because if now all of a sudden Ottawa is saying we have to bring in the military or bring in extra hundreds of police officers, <laughs> yes. what's going to happen in Port Dover next Friday the 13th? It's going to be a lockdown police state.
2: So uh you know I I obviously the big difference here as you pointed out trucks versus motorcycles you know you have to in hindsight 2020 but as this inquiry goes on you have to wonder did not a red flag go up the pole as soon as people realized that these people are coming and they're bringing trucks
10: well well yeah uh, maybe you should have but Again, you know, one of the things that um, and you know I know we've chatted about this, but there was a w- I really believe there were ways that even if trucks were coming, you didn't have to antagonize yeah. them that made it as bad as it was. looks unquestionably, there's a chance that those trucks, no matter what happened, were going to come and stay. Unquestionably, that could have been the case. We'll never know. But I also believe that if you had not stuck your finger in their eyeball and tried to tick them off and tried to antagonize. them. there's a great chance that it might've been far, far less than it ever was. And so, you know, look, and now with the, with the motorcycles, um, here's something we've got to be very, very careful of, I really believe. And that is this, we don't want, I don't think we don't want to create a situation where we've now decided protests are illegal in Ottawa. You are allowed in this country to protest. And, you know, because here's the other thing that that those in Ottawa, those in power in Ottawa may want to consider. You may be taking a strong stand on this and saying, you know what, protests, we just can't tolerate these kinds of protests. Let's wait and see what happens the next time a protest goes for a cause you favor somewhere else in the country. And see if you take the same hard stand next time a group of people try and stop a pipeline from being built and chain themselves to it or do whatever else. Are you If you're going to start cracking down on every protest and saying we've now got to have hundreds of police and we're going to have arrests and you better not do this, are we going to see the same when the political cause is something that is more favorable yeah. to your side? I don't was- think so.
2: It was interesting. We had the former police chief of, of Sault Ste. Marie on, and he he kept saying, you know, these right-wing fringe groups, these right-wing fringe groups. And I didn't step in and say, you know, there's, there's as much on the left with the anarchists that are coming in. Um, what's the chance of this being hijacked, as we've all seen? And, and you know, it's interesting watching the media bring a, an organizer on who has a hard time stringing two words together. We don't understand what the reason is. We don't understand. And I'm thinking, man, you know, like... You're missing the the point here.
10: If you have a bunch of people, let's say, I don't know how many people they're expecting, but let's say you've got several who do something outrageous. All right? Is that hijacking it? Should that mean that then all the other thousands who behave Mm -hmm. and just are there to protest shouldn't? Uh, Look, I, I can tell you, I remember a number of years ago, at a Labor Day classic at Iverwind Stadium after the game an Argo fan and a Ticat fan got into a fight and one of them bit the ear off the other guy? Mm. Should we then say, well, that game was hijacked by those drunken out-of-control fans and therefore we should no longer be having a Labor Day classic? Of course you would never say that. But, if you're only going to point the camera at the few lunatics and say this is representative of everybody now.
2: And I, and I, I think that's what we're doing here.
10: Well, I, look, if, if, If it turns out that all these people roll in and they all misbehave and they all cause a huge problem, that is an entirely different scenario than a number, a small number, a very small percentage who act like wing nuts, which happens in every single gathering for every single event. There's always a few. There's always a few, whether it's sports or politics or entertainment or whatever, there's always a few. If we only say that that group is representative, we then, two things we then miss the point, and two, the next time it happens on the other side of the political aisle, the same must be applied. And so the person who does something stupid, who is representing the far-left cause, we have to then say, that is representative of all the people there. And you know what? A whole lot of people are going to shout, come on, you can't say that, it's just Hmm. exactly the point.
2: Scott Radley with us, host of The Scott Radley Show, and you can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time, be well. You
0: too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
2: That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciated. Thanks to the two Wills for producing and Diana and Dave in the newsroom. And you, of course, the great listener who always supplies us. With the last word, Tony? On
7: this about workplace damage and stuff like that, it's up to the companies and bosses to try to not push it so the men go into a dangerous position. The workers can work as safe as they can. They can work with each other, but the company will push it so that you have to be in a dangerous position. And if you refuse the work because you think it's dangerous, they punish you for it.